Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Eat Local New York podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Tringale, and in this week's episode, my guest is Keenan Davis from Eden. I, well, first of all, I want to say I'm, a re- I'm thrilled to have had Keenan on the podcast. I had a great time, really great time chatting with him. Uh, it's been something on my mind. I should have reached out to Keenan a while ago. Our, our friend Chris over at the Evergreen suggested I have him on the podcast about six months ago. Yeah, maybe a year ago even. But, uh, you know, things happen for a reason. Things happen in time and uh, when they're supposed to. And, you know, today I'm, you know, getting more and more into spirits and cocktails and, you know, put the bar in here at the studio. And so, you know, maybe now is the time. I wasn't supposed to reach out to Keenan uh, back when Chris first suggested I was supposed to do it today. And so I'm glad that I could have him on because I could have a, a better appreciation for his craft and what he does. And, um, you know, I, I I know I've said it before on Instagram, at least I think I have, if I haven't. Uh, maybe the, the best cocktail program in Syracuse is found at Eden. Um, they've recently won a Wine Spectator Award, and uh, Keenan is a certified SOM and, and just doing some really wonderful things over at Eden uh, to pair along with just the fine experience and wonderful food that Rich is putting out of that restaurant. Uh, we're really fortunate here in Syracuse, at least I, I think that we are. Um, I have I have really high hopes for this area. You know, it, it, it's funny, growing up, you know, my dad was always in the restaurant uh, business in some capacity, uh, food service business in some capacity, you know, early on in his life. And I've done a podcast with him a couple years ago that's out, but early on in his life, he owned restaurants. And, and when I was a kid and we lived in Kentucky, dad, mom and dad owned a diner, 50 style diner, and they had it for just, just about a year. Um, and I was just old enough to help out around there, but also not old enough to have real any real responsibility. Um, and that was a challenging year. I remember that was a really difficult year for my family. But uh, but anyways, I've always been uh, surrounded by the hospitality industry. And you know, growing up, I never wanted to do this. I ne- growing up, I never wanted to be in the food or restaurant business. It just... Um, it, it never really seemed too appealing to me. Uh, and yeah, I just never really had too much of a, I knew the sacrifice that it took. I knew, I knew just, and really just part of it. Um, but I, I, I knew how challenging of a bit of a, of a life, the hospitality and food service industry, uh, was. And so I never wanted to be a part of it. Um, and I don't know what, it's like kind of the thing that you, you know, go against, uh, you wish doesn't happen the most, winds up happening. Uh, but, you know, when I moved back here to Syracuse seven years ago, I just almost immediately fell in love with the hospitality, with the food service industry, and with those, those industries specifically related to Syracuse and Central New York. I've told this story a thousand times in the podcast but, it, you know, Eat Local started because I, I met with an owner who had started a restaurant based on her dream, and that's where everything started and stopped for her was her dream. 
Um, you know, they say most people, you know, you, you have to have a dream in order to, you know, carry the, you know, uh, carry through the hard times and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you're as passionate and yada, 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 and that's not always the case. Sometimes you can be, you know, extremely passionate and have this wonderful dream about your, about what you want to accomplish, but you just fuck up and you don't know what the fuck you're doing. And so, uh, that dream never becomes a reality. The, I'm, I'm happy to say not because of anything that I did. Uh, but that owner that I met with those seven years ago, um, her restaurant did fail, and now she's still still an owner and an operator and has a, has a successful food business, and I'll leave it at that. I want nothing more than for Syracuse to be known, to be represented on a um, national level for the quality of food and beverages that we put out of our restaurants and, uh, and, and even more so for our hospitality. I think, Sarah, you know, I think back to when I, live in, when I lived in Texas, and hospitality was something that everyone possessed, like the, the ability to be hospitable. I don't know if that's correct in saying it that way or not. But, you know, the, the, the friendly Texan was a thing, and everyone was that when you lived in Texas. Even if you weren't a Texan, when you were in Texas, you were a friendly Texan. There is just these wonderful restaurants in Texas that I miss dearly from wonderful Italian spots that had like a legit Sam on staff uh, to hole in the wall Mexican restaurants or hole in the wall country fried steak joints, you know, just all these different things. And but the hospitality in Texas, no matter what the food was, if you were at the lowest of the low or the highest of the high, the hospitality in Texas was always something to behold. Everyone was friendly. Everyone was nice. Everyone wanted to talk to you. And, uh, and that's something to me, at least in my experience at Texas food, the hospitality scene was known for. And, um, and so, and my hope for Syracuse, do I want us to be known to produce some wonderful foods, uh, from, shitty regional classics like the Utica Greens, and I, I love Utica Greens, but, you know, in the world of culinary adventures, it's not uh, the top of the, you know, list. But uh, from things like that to just you know, places like Amano and uh, Eden and St. Urban that are just making some of the highest quality foods and have some wonderful creativity on their menus, Um. My point is, I want us to be known for our food, for our drinks, for our creativity, for our chefs, for our um, restaurants that we open, and also for our hospitality. Those are those are my hopes for Syracuse. Um, and I'm still young, and so sometimes I say stupid shit, and sometimes I really beat Syracuse up in the things I say about our food scene. Uh, we've had a lot of restaurants closing lately. And, you know, it's something that's obviously been happening all across the country for the past three years. And, and Syracuse, and I've said this before, Syracuse is kind of omitted from the mass COVID restaurant closings that some other parts of the country uh, were more severely affected by. But I feel like it's catching up to us now. You know, the owners who, who survived through the, the throngs of COVID— are now still dealing with those after effects, those effects of no staffing available and those effects of 
supply chain issues and rising food costs and rising supply costs. And so there's a lot of restaurants that are closing. Another thing in the restaurant industry is there's a next generation that does not want to work in food service. Now, if a recession comes up in the next year or two or three or whenever it's inevitably going to happen, I think maybe we'll see some sort of a resurgence in the restaurant industry and staffing because people will be going to get those jobs that it, you know are, are usually available in restaurants. Um, but for the most part, the next generation does not want to take over their parents' restaurants. Uh, and that's happening a lot. You've got a lot of older owners, you know, owners that are in their 50s and 60s and 70s who their kids just don't want to have anything to do with the family business. And so it doesn't get passed on. Restaurants don't get really passed on as much as they used to. Instead, they get sold or closed or auctioned off or whatever. But a lot of restaurants are closing. And I am of the opinion, as much as I hate to see someone's dream get shut down, uh, I'm also very hopeful that as one restaurant closes who did the same old thing for the last 20 years and never made any changes or did anything creative, my hope is that restaurants like Three Lives begin to take their places. No, I don't want to see a city full of arcade bars. But restaurants like Three Lives that have owners like John Page who are always thinking outside of the box and always thinking of new ways to provide a unique experience to their customer and who produce great food because let's be honest the burgers and chicken sandwiches at three lives are very 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 good and so are the cocktails are very 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 good you know uh also in the top three in terms of best cocktail programs in the city of syracuse is at three lives um So I'm talking a lot here in the intro, but I just wanted to clarify that. You know, a lot of people tell me that I I come across as extremely negative about the city of Syracuse and central New York, the region of central New York, and our food scene. And it's not because I'm I'm just trying to be a a douche. It's not because I'm trying to be a dick. Uh, It's not because I genuinely hate our food scene and think that it's awful. It's because I I hope, I know that we could be a lot better than we are. And I hope that one day, and I hope I can be some part, some small help in that, uh, I hope that one day our area, our food scene, our, our, you know, like I've just said, our restaurant scene uh, gets to that level of national recognition, of creativity, of wonderful hospitality. And uh, yeah, so... With that being said, and I apologize for the very long intro, uh, let's... Actually, I I want to pause because I'm not used to this, so I always forget to do it. But we have sponsors now on the podcast, and uh, those sponsors are Pascal's Liquors in Liverpool and Pascal's Wines and Liquors in Fayetteville. A very big shout-out to Nick, who has um, come on as a sponsor for really our cocktail videos, but I want to give them as much attention as I possibly can from anything for Eat Local because um, I'm just so grateful that they have, uh, that Nick has trusted me to to sponsor our cocktail videos. And so um, make sure that if you're buying wine, liquor, anything spirit related, uh, check them out. Um, Nick's Picks over on Instagram, Nick's Picks, I think three and five maybe, but um, anyways, wonderful company, 
local family, been in the hospitality industry for years, and uh, awesome bourbon selection. So, yeah. And then also, we do have a national company that's a sponsor, and that is Barfly Mixology Gear, Bar- Barfly by Mercer. Um, they were gracious enough to send me a bunch of their cocktail mixology gear for the video. So, big shout out to them. All right. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Keenan Davis. You're certified, correct? Correct. Which is a very tenuous process. Yes. It was, um, you know, coming from like no wine background, my parents don't drink. Mm. Um, it was a lot of active study. I, you know, try to try to get in two to three hours a day, every day for a few years to get up to the point where I felt confident to certify. Wow. Uh, I did it in LA in 2020, right before the pandemic. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I always loved it as like a, um, uh, it was beautifully ironic because I, I did the certification partially to sort of like solidify myself in my job. I was like, you know, this is job security to say like, oh, I'm a SOM now. So, you know, I have this piece of paper and then I moved here and I was applying for jobs and just getting told by people like, we can't hire you because if we hire you and then fine dining comes back, we know you'll just quit or like you're overqualified to work here. Or, like, we, you know, we can't have, you know, huh. like our manager's not even a SOM. Like we can't have you in here. And was, so, that in the, was that in Syracuse? That was yeah, a, a bit around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> some wineries, some restaurants. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. Because thinking about that, I'm thinking, I don't know of many restaurants in the area who know uh, what a SOM is or know the different levels <laughs> in Syracuse, at least. There's definitely a handful, but probably yeah. not many. Uh, but wineries makes a hell of a lot more sense. Yeah. yeah. What's that like? I mean, what do, I mean, you know, so there is, uh, I forget the first level, what that's called. There's certified, there's advanced, and there's master, correct? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, what's it like to be a certified uh, how do you pronounce it? Somali? Yeah, some. Okay, some. Yeah. So how does that feel to be certified? It felt really cool to yeah. certify. <laughs> so I certified when I was 24, um, and I did it in Beverly Hills um, against a bunch of people who worked in Michelin restaurants, people who owned wine shops, people who owned wine bars, and I was the youngest by probably about 10 years in the exam. Mm. And uh, I finished first. They don't tell wow. you like where you finish in the rankings unless you finish first. And so I'm mm. sitting there and I'm like, so sure I've failed. And they've calling all the names <laughs> off and there's one diploma left. And I, like, I'm like, I think that's a K. And none of these people had K in their name. <laughs> and they call my name is like, you know, you just won the scholarship, this bottle of wine. And like you finished first in the exam. And so it was kind of, you know, it just felt really great to like, wow. you know, be this. I was coming from Portland, Maine, you know, this podunk town beverage director at this restaurant nobody's ever heard of (laughs) outside of Maine you know it's very regionally famous um but you know to come to LA and do that felt really really cool so that was 555 yeah okay so um there's a lot of questions I want to ask you what's um and this is probably a really dumb one um what is the difference what have you noticed is the difference in the food scene from uh, where you were in Maine, Portland, Maine area, yeah. to Syracuse? I would say one of the biggest differences that I've seen, and this isn't to put anybody down, it's um, sort of the market is different. Like the, the clientele and what people are seeking out 
isn't the same in Syracuse as it is in Portland. Uh, Portland became a food destination, like, as I was living and working there, I think um, hmm. Bon Appetit named it foodiest city in the country. And, you know, the downtown really? peninsula has about, like, two or 300 restaurants on this, like, couple square mile area. And so it's very densely packed tourists come from all over new england it's the biggest city between new hampshire vermont and maine and so it's a lot of people like mm. congregating there who don't want to move to boston mm. and so i felt like a lot of the food was very intentional like people were putting out a product because that was their theme that was their identity that was their product mm. um and here i feel like it's a little bit more catered to the audience that we have and so like themed restaurants are harder to find in my opinion the idea of like uh you know we serve uh you know high french cuisine that's what mm -hmm. we do you know we're not going to branch out we're not going to put a burger on the menu yeah. you know that it doesn't seem like mm. those type of restaurants can survive here yet um or you know maybe pre and post pandemic i moved here july of 2020 so i'm not sure what it was before but uh, not much has changed. Uh, uh, existed back then. I don't know if they were still here when you got here. I got to work there for about two months oh, yeah, really? before okay. they permanently closed. So, I mean, Cody and, you know, uh, Nick, I'm sure, but you know, I, I really, I know Nick more now, but I knew Cody a lot more then. Um, you know, Cody, in my opinion, you know, was, you know, probably the best, uh, I guess at, at this, at this stage in the game, you really can't say best because, we don't have anybody in the area that's uh, worthy enough, for lack of a better term, to like put that classification. I'm sure as shit not. Uh, but Cody, when I first met Cody, I just got done reading Dan Barber's Third Plate and having him talk so much about like Klaus Martens and Penyan and you know and and I was at a dinner at the Eleven Waters that Cody was when he was there and. And he was talking about he went out to you know Pennellville or not Pennellville um, wherever the hell it is shit uh, out near Rochester I'm forgetting the name now but anyways he went out there and met Klaus Martins and has been buying grain from him and he's using that in his breads and I was like holy cow I've never heard anybody in Syracuse talk about or know anything you know know anything outside of Syracuse yeah before so um, but they were really you know they were very concentrated for sure. Yeah, I would say Cody gave me like a really good kind of almost metaphor for all of Syracuse when I first moved here is, you know, I'm a very precise bartender and I, and I have ideas and themes that I, I want to stick to. And one of the big things is I try to cut all of my own ice um, for every on menu cocktail. If there's ice in it, I cut it. Mm -hmm. And when I was working at Defee, he had said to me, I was like, you know, I want to bring in clear ice. And I was like, I think it's worth it. You know, it's a slower dilution. Yeah. It's better aesthetically for these beverages. I think it'll be great for the program. And he told me that he didn't want to do that because he didn't think the demand was there. Mm -hmm. And I like to me, you know, I'd been in Syracuse like three months and I was like, <laughs> Oh God, what did I get myself into? <laughs> and so when I started at Eden, one of the first things I did was bring in my stupid coolers. To yeah, like, right. We're making clear <laughs> ice. <Yeah. laughs> Is there a company in Syracuse that will make clear ice? Not to my knowledge. So you have to just do it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like to, though. You know, just kind of therapeutic to sit there with the hammer and the yeah. knife and, and tap it out and get... This isn't you know. clear, but this is the first ice that I made. Uh, and I bought the cooler last week and did the first thing and sat here on Friday for 30 minutes and chipped away at this big block to <laughs> get my own ice cubes. And it was fun. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah. It was... gets taxing when you do it every single day. But... Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for someone like me who doesn't yet know... Uh, 
anything about uh, cocktails or liquor or anything like that. Uh, it felt really douchey to be doing it, but uh, but I'm sure hopefully as I progress in my knowledge, it'll make uh, it won't be you know seem as pretentious, I guess, when it makes sense. Because right now it makes no sense for what I'm making. Yeah, it was um, <laughs> when I first started doing it, I didn't even really know why. It was just kind of like a bar trend, and I wasn't really as plugged in as I, I try to be now. And and I was like holding it, and I'm like clear ice, good. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> like, <laughs> And you know, I was it was five fifty five. It was this old school fine dining restaurant. People were there for wine, like they weren't mm. there for the cocktail program. And so, like, I was putting so much time and effort into it for myself, really. At yeah. the end of the day, um, but you know, coming here, it's been great to have that like background to be able to now work in an environment where people really want that. So, yeah, what's it like? I mean, you're at Eden, which is like uh, you know, t- in the top three without a doubt in Syracuse. Um, you know, the best three restaurants in Syracuse are St. Urban and Amano and Eden in no particular order. Um, and so, but even at a restaurant that's so um, intentional as Eden and so uh, has such a high standard, um, I don't think that they put as much attention into the cocktail program before you arrived, right? I mean, obviously they put a lot of attention into it, but... Um, what's it like to be in charge of a program in a city like this where not many people know what the hell you're doing? <laughs> you know, it actually, it, it felt really great and it still does. Um, I say that Eden and I found each other at the perfect time. I had been working some odd jobs and just been really kind of burnt out and not feeling like I was finding my home in Syracuse, not like a place in a restaurant or a community that I really fit into. And, you know, and I kind of just hassled Rich, the the chef over there, Mm -hmm. uh, until he hired me. I I sent him an email. I sent the restaurant an email and then I called and then I asked Chef Cody to ask Rich if we were hiring. And then I showed up <laughs> with no no appointment. And eventually he was like, all right, fine. Like, and and um, so I, I always say that, like, you know, we found each other at a perfect time because they needed a ready-made bar manager and I needed to be left alone. Yeah. And so, um, you know, he has been extremely open. Um, he told me, you know, pretty early on, like, I don't really want to be involved with the front of house. Like, mm. I'm a chef. I'm a creative First and foremost, I want to be focusing on the food. Like, yeah. if you can do this, awesome. Please do it. And I am beyond flattered at how open Syracuse has been to my cocktails. Mm-hmm. Is I keep pushing and I keep trying new things and I keep developing new ideas and identities for the bar. And people are right there with it. Mm-hmm. I track sales consistently throughout the restaurant. One of the big things that has stayed a constant is of our liquor sales on a month-to-month, 85% of those liquor sales come from on-menu cocktails. Wow. Um, We have 11 to 12 at any given time. Um, And that is, it's 40% of the whole program and 80 of liquor, 80 Mm. plus of liquor. And so when I was in Maine, I was maybe 40% of liquor sales, 20% overall. Really? Um, and I had classics on the menu at that point, too. You know, yeah. I would do eight classics and eight new ones every menu. Um, wow. So to see this much, like, kind of just like, yeah, we'll drink whatever you tell us, you know, that that feels awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think, especially at a place like Eden, um, you know, Amano gets a lot of shit. Uh, I shouldn't say Amano gets a lot of shit. Alex has given stories and examples before of, um, customers going in and saying, where's the chicken parm? You know, where's the chicken riggies? And those are just dishes that he's, you know, said he's never going to put on the menu. 
Um, and I feel like Eden probably gets a lot less of that uh, because um, they aren't really one category. You know, they aren't like an Italian restaurant or a French restaurant or anything like that. Um, and it's also a really limited menu. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't think of, if I go into a restaurant, there's only, well, I shouldn't say that because I went to Wamano and ordered a Negroni that they didn't have in the menu. But um, <laughs> I was going to I was just going to say, like, if I go into a place, and I know that there's an expert doing their thing. I'm just trusting whatever they're doing. I don't really care what it is. I don't care if I don't like it at first. I'm saying it's because my palate isn't there yet, not because it's not good. You know, now if I go and get a cheeseburger somewhere and I don't like it, it's, I'm going to say it's because it's not good. Yeah, you're qualified to answer the cheeseburger question. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not qualified to answer somebody who made their own Amaro and brought it in. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, drink it if you want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so that is, uh, that's more, is, uh, how would you consume that? You would consume that with... I recommend it on an ice rock. That's just how I like it. Oh, um, like that? Yeah. Oh, okay. And so I, I have done it in cocktails before. Yeah. Um, one of the big ones I did, I did a spin on a white Negroni featuring it. Um, hmm. You know, trying to feature all Finger Lakes or all New York State products. It was a distillery down in Long Island. And um, this company out in the Finger Lakes that's making... Um, Fortified, fortified and aromatized wine. Yeah. Um, and so it's Le Lay Blanc, effectively. Yeah. Um, it's Balsam Magnolia Aperitif, if anybody's mm. curious. Um, but yeah. I don't even think they make it anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> I stocked up when they did. And I was running that as effectively a spin on a white Negroni. That was one of the first mm. features I put on the menu to say, like, I'm here. I make my own Amaro. It's on the menu. Drink it. Mm. Um, and so these days, you know, I, I put together a digestive menu. Um, and it'll be right there. I make that in the Frenet style as well. And they're both listed right at the top. So okay. they're, you know, they're a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, as people, as people keep coming in, they're, they're starting to order it as their digestive or asking me to make a cocktail based around the Amaro. Dude, you get a lot of customers that come in and are aware of what to drink and when to drink it. Or is a lot of like, you know, Neanderthals like me who just come in and say, you know, I want an alcoholic drink. <laughs> I'd say it's pretty pretty even split there are people who are very particular on how they want to drink you know they want their their cocktail before dinner they want wine with their dinner they're going to want an after dinner drink either coffee or some sort of ice wine or uh, port or something along the lines of that mm. but then the the people who aren't are just happy to be along for the ride yeah and that's what i always find is great it is 99.7 percent of interactions i have with people regarding beverages at eden are positive okay. and that's great like they just want to be drinking and they want to be drinking the way we were telling them to drink. And Absolutely. so when we do our wine dinners, you know, we start with a, um, an aperitif before and a digestive after, and those are intentional and they're made to be there at the place that they are there and people are happy to drink it. And so, yeah. you know, they're there for wine, but they'll drink the, the cocktails before and after. That's cool. <laughs> what is that? So, you know, I'm, I'm going out to dinner and I'm, I'm sure obviously a big part of this depends on what I'm having. So, don't take that into consideration. But I'm going out to dinner. I'm going to have a nice, uh, wonderful dinner. I'm at one of those three restaurants, Eden, you know, Amano, St. Urban, wherever. Um, so I'm not at Applebee's, okay? So what are those drinks that I should be having before and during and after that are, uh, I guess they could be anything based, but let's say specifically cocktail based. I would say before, you want to usually stay lower proof. Mm. Um uh, maybe slightly either acidic or bubbly. Uh, effectively, you're trying to cleanse a palate. You're trying to wash a palate. You know, I always think of it, and it's kind of how I say it at the beginning of wine dinners, is you have been out 
all day. You've been drinking, you've been eating, maybe coffee, some sort of sweet at some point. Like, you know, maybe you had a burger at noon or something because mm-hmm. you're like, I don't know how much food they're going to serve at this wine <laughs> dinner, so I got to eat before just in case. <laughs> uh, and so when people come in, I want to cleanse their palate at the start of it. And so I'm going to serve them something that usually has a little bit of bitterness to it, some acidity, and is usually bubbly. Um, As we go through the meal, you want something that can stand up to your food is usually the best way to put it. Like, you know, you need astringency or acid to cut through, like, richer dishes is one of the big things. If it's a steak, you want some sort of astringency in the cocktail. Mm. Um, If you're having chicken, acid works really well with it. Um, and then when we get after dinner, the two things, if you're having dessert and you want a dessert drink, um, the, the safe rule of thumb, and everybody calls me crazy for this one because they're like, no, red wine and chocolate is great. Red wine and chocolate is awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> the safe rule of thumb is that your dessert drink must be sweeter than your dessert. Um, mm. Because if it is not, and you t- especially wine. So we're drinking, mm. if we're drinking a wine, like a dry red, and we have a chocolate, like a sweet chocolate dish, like a pot of creme, and you take a bite of that and then drink the wine, the wine will taste like nothing but acid mm. because there's acid in it. Yeah. And your palate is currently weighed down by all the sugar and the fat from the dish. And that's like coating your tongue. And only the only thing that's getting through is acid. Okay. And so you do a sweeter dessert or a sweeter beverage to kind of complement that and help like really highlight the flavors that you're trying to, to focus on. And then once you get to the other end of that, you want another palate cleanser. Um, and this is usually when people will go for darker ideas. That's where Frenette is great. Is it? I don't believe in digestives working to settle your stomach. I'm a yeah. firm believer that you're just a little more drunk than you were before. <laughs> <laughs> and um, In general yeah. or just uh, specifically after a meal? Uh Pretty much ever. I think the one time I tried to use a digestive for its intended purposes, I threw up. (laughs) An entire bar of, like, a huge bar of chocolate felt awful. And I was like, I know. I'll have some Amaro. Drank it, threw up. (laughs) And, uh, but so having that, you just want one more palate cleanser to kind of wash away everything. You know, something like a steak is extremely rich. And there is fat in that. And you just kind of want to wash that off. And, Mm. you know, you finish the meal. That final taste in your mouth should be something that was cleansing for your palate. Okay. And also it's, it's punctuation for the dinner too. Mm. You know, if the last thing you have is a really great cocktail and you leave, you'll think about that. But you know, if the last thing you have is like you ate a burger with a brioche bun, aioli cheese and bacon, (laughs) and now you're like, oh my God, I feel awful. That's your last impression of the restaurant. (laughs) Uh, That's pretty funny. Yeah. I'd never thought about really like what you should or shouldn't have or when or what you should have and when in a dinner until recently and I was like on my way to Amano uh and earlier this month and so I decided to just google it and read some blogs and uh the only thing that I really found was you know the before which was a solid negroni so uh, so I've been drinking them ever since and uh I really enjoy them um I just don't understand the Anthony Bourdain um you know, one is fine to get you there, and three, you're saying, you know, where are my pants and who are you? Um, I don't mm-hmm. see three Negronis doing that, but you know, I am also a bigger guy, so who knows? Um, but uh, but uh, I really enjoy it. I lo- you know, it's a great drink, and so as like, and then I'm trying to, I couldn't find anything on what should you have during dinner or after dinner, and form in the form of cocktails. Uh, so that's what I was asking. Yeah, um, I think that's a big issue in the industry is there's sort of this perception that cocktails and food do not go together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been that way since now disgraced master Psalm Fred Dame, um, 
it was actually it was in a book called 99 bottles from uh another psalm named andre mack he's down in the city and he talked about the first time he met fred dame and and he was like let's have some cocktails and he was like fuck cocktails those ruin your palate um and <laughs> and i think that kind of perception like hit what he's thinking when he thinks of a cocktail is not the same thing that i'm thinking yeah um and so I think that like it's shifting and you're starting to see it. Like you're starting to see intentional pairings between cocktails and food, but we're not like established there yet. There's still a lot of people who don't think they go together. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, uh, you know, I went to, there's a, a phenomenal restaurant and chef in Lake Placid called purple sage bistro. And, uh, you know, just knowing how much it's something like a heavy IPA can really ruin your palate before a great meal. Um, I just remember sitting, I, you know, to just, I said to the chef and to the owner who's like this, you know, really well-known chef. I mean, he's like, you know, cooked for every, every celebrity that ever existed and worked for all these different celebrity chefs. And, um, so anyway, so, you know, I, I said, I just got done saying to him, um, ordering, I said, whatever you think I should have, you know, I, I love doing that when I trust the person, you know, if you think I should have it, I'll have it. And, uh, you know, right after I said that I ordered like this double, you know, crazy IPA. And as soon as I took a drink, it was like, well, I just ruined my fucking dinner, you know, yeah, because it's like, okay, you should have the check then. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. So no, it's interesting. I mean, my, you know, with the algorithms, my, all of my feed nowadays is cocktail content and videos. And um, it's really interesting to see uh, all the different bars out there and, you know, the things that they're putting out, like the really high-end nice ones, especially in places like New York City. And and, um, uh, and then thinking about, like, how I can put different things on my cocktail menu at the bar, uh, even though it's a completely different setting. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, what's something that you wish a lot of your, you know, a lot of the population knew going into cocktails in general, not necessarily just your bar. I would say that, you know, that a bartender is seeking an identity when they invent a drink. Um, and when you build a drink, you know, from my perspective, I look for like five different elements of a cocktail. Um, and that is, you know, how, how does it appear to me visually? What's the olfactory experience? How does it smell? Does it smell good? How does it feel when I drink it? Um, how does it taste what's the intensity of the taste and is it balanced? And I think kind of the big hang up a lot of people have, you know, they come in and the first thing they say to me is, um, are any of these drinks sweet? Hmm. And I'm sure this is true pretty much everywhere. I mean, everywhere I've ever bartended, somebody's asked me that question. Yeah. And, and I've been sitting in bars in New York city where I've seen that question asked. I know it's asked nationwide hmm. and the truthful answer is no, it should never be sweet because no one element should ever dominate. And I wish people would, well, this is actually kind of more on bartenders um, because, you know, you go to places where like I like I had a mojito kind of recently. It's not a sweet drink traditionally. Mm. Um, and it was a sugar bomb. And I was like, why did I order this? I know I don't really like these. Like, <laughs> um, and I think, you know, that kind of perception we had the 80s, I call it like the dark ages of bartending, you know, yeah. like it ruined the perception of cocktails for people. And so coming in, I wish they would trust like you're saying that like you know you trust on the person and that the menu that they've put together is going to have some sort of quality option on it yeah yeah it you know i it, it's so different with food because food i mean there are very traditional things but everybody can kind of have their riff on it and it's still is okay like um 
Yeah, like it's it's okay. It's not uh, frowned upon to change, you know, certain little elements of a traditional food dish. Um, you know, you know, that's probably argued if you try to do a, you know, Mexican street corn shepherd's pie. That would obviously be frowned upon, but uh, depending on what circle you're in or city. Um, but with cocktails, when it comes to the traditional cocktails, I don't like I see so many riffs and I don't want to see like as someone who's just starting to get into it. I don't want to see those riffs. I want to see like you so, told me this is an old fashioned. I want a fucking old fashioned. You know what I mean? hundred um, percent. That's how. You know, I tried to build menus when I first got going, when I was trying to build faith in my clientele and me. Um, you know, I put eight classics that were maybe not on the beaten path at the mm-hmm. time. You know, things like, you know, how often do you see a Martinez on a menu is kind of what I was going for. And I put these classics on like Bucarest and Martinez because I wanted you to come in and order that, see that it was executed exactly how it should be, and then give you faith to try something new. Mm. And that was how I did it for a very long time. Eden is the first place I've worked where I didn't put classics on the menu. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I was looking, I was thinking about the menu the last time we were in, and I was looking at the menu and uh, recently. And yeah, that's, um, yeah. And like, you know, at the, at, uh, at the bar that I'm, which it's, you know, it's a far cry from what you do in, from, in, from Eden. You know, it's a fruit farm, you know, where people go to pick apples and, you know, blueberries and strawberries and people aren't coming in there thinking that they're going to get some phenomenal cocktail. But, um, uh, and it is challenging. I mean, obviously not because you're making a lot of your own stuff and you found, um, you know, different, suppliers who make certain things i just recently found out that there's somebody in new york state doing vermouth i didn't know that there was anybody before that there's a few yeah there are a few yeah. really okay so i need to expand the horizon <laughs> then because i thought that there was nobody doing yeah. it um so uh yeah so trying to come up with the cocktails for the fall menu there a lot of them are just you know really really basic um and then you mentioned like the mojito i mean i have a blueberry mojito on the menu that I mean, it comes in a fucking mason jar, but um, <laughs> and it is a sugar bomb. But I couldn't find a rum, uh, uh, rum that I liked. Uh, there was one or two that I tried from the immediate area that weren't very good, and so I'm using Lock One's coconut excuse liqueur on it, which is you know really fucking good. But uh, not you know, and the mojito it is. Uh, but that's the number one seller of that drink, and it's a massive sugar bomb. Uh, but people love their fucking sugar. They love it. Yeah. And then when you, you take that into consideration, that's a palate destroyer, you right. know? And you're yeah. like, that's why people think that, like, yeah. you know, and that's the nature of it, uh, is, you know, that, and until that clientele makes that full shift into it, it's, we saw it in wine, mm-hmm. like American palates have been drifting drier in wine for a very, very long time. Yeah. And so like, maybe it'll happen, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty interesting yeah i mean luckily the palate you know out at you know farm is it goes from the mojito and then to a hot dog so it's you know not you know i'm not too worried about having to destroy their palate as they go to have that um but yeah i did just you know it's 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 i'm trying to figure out that balance with it because it's so i i was you know trying to think of like something classic to put on there i've got um two different bourbons out there that we buy we don't sell a lot of bourbon. It's not like, you know, the people buy the, you know, sweet, you know, those sweet drinks as much. Like I have a, a white Russian on the menu and, you know, that sells really well and the mojito and yada, yada, yada. So I was trying to find a way to like really push the bourbon. I've got Lock Ones, um, Waldron, whatever the hell it is. And then I just brought in Old Home Distillers Field Days bourbon. Uh, 
So I did a campfire maple sling, I called it. And it's maple syrup, uh, a little bit of cinnamon simple syrup that I make, and then um, two ounces of bourbon. So it's a half ounce of maple, a quarter ounce of the cinnamon, and then I smoke it with cherry wood at the end. And it is good, but it's just really, really strong at every step. Like in the beginning, it's just really smoky. And then you get like a couple seconds of like the, you get the bourbon. And at the end, it's just really, really sweet. I'm trying to find that balance of like, maybe the cinnamon doesn't need to be there. Although I kind of wanted the cinnamon to be in there, but maybe it's just adding too much sweetness. So you could, um, take out the cinnamon simple syrup and use a uh, lock houses fernet style amaro just a mm. maybe a half ounce of it it's um like i call it like the pumpkin pie spices oh really? they're like deep in it it's like almost like old-fashioned bitters really you get this like kind of cinnamon clove nutmeg note out of it mm. and so okay. i use it a lot to kind of dial back sweetness on like dessert drinks i okay. did a, a s'mores flip last summer that i had actually yeah. like made uh meringue that i was piping on top of it wow. and um, I use that Amaro to kind of pull back the, the sweet from the chocolate. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. My first thought was, I was going to try and find like a, you know, a cinnamon concentrate or something I could like do a couple eye drops on. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a different, completely different setting, but you know, are you ever, I mean, when you're creating these cocktails, are you thinking to yourself, like, are you going through speed and, um, the ability to pump out drinks or are you just saying like, it doesn't matter this is a craft cocktail. They'll wait for it. Um, I still think in the first way, but the truth of the environment is the second way. Is that like, I, to me, I'm still building a drink, recipe and the idea that it's a 45 second par uh, to make the drink. You know, I always look at prep as like backloading all of the work. So it's just combining ingredients when it's time to make the drink. And, but I'm at a point where people will wait. And so like I come flying down the bar and I'm like, I'm so sorry for the delay. Thank you so much for your patience. And they're like, Oh no delay at all. Hmm. I'm like, okay. All right. Like, <laughs> like, we saw you working. And I was like, Oh, all right. Yeah. Cool. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was going to give you free stuff, but then he said that. So yeah. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, how much is too much for a cocktail in Syracuse? And Syracuse is the important part. There. Um, money or <laughs> ingredients. Money. <laughs> I think the cap is 15. That's okay. what I've seen. I have a cocktail on right now at 15. And people in Syracuse, I don't know why. Mm-hmm. In all of upstate New York, this is something I found true. Every environment that I worked in, they love tequila. Really? It is. When I was over bartending at the Krebs, I made more margaritas there in like a weekend than I had made in the previous two years. Well, that feels and, right at the Krebs. Because, yeah. you know, I mean... <laughs> And, um, you know, people ask me all the time for tequila drinks on the Eden menu. Um, And I had Mm. found a distillery out near Buffalo called Steelbound, and they were doing an agave distillate. But it's wholesale, I think, 36 a bottle, and that's far outside of cocktail pricing. Yeah. And I was like, I want to do this. I want to I do this for the people who have been asking. And so I was like, well, you know, if you use an ounce and kind of subsidize it with some other fun stuff, you could probably get it around 15 and that's going to be a good margin for the bar Mm. and that one sells but i have had other 15 dollar cocktails that do not sell really so i think it's it's 15 with the asterisk that it has to be tequila based (laughs) (laughs) does eden have a farm license is that why it's all new york state or is it just because it's the mission of the restaurant 
It's just because it's the mission of the okay. restaurant. So I carry actually a lot of outside of New York State products. Okay. Um, I carry many small market distillates, um, Amari, bitter cordials from all throughout Europe. Mm. Uh, my big thing is that I don't work with any major brands. Okay. So there's nothing, you're going to look at the bar and I say it to people all the time when I see them scanning and I'm like, you're going to understand that you recognize nothing on this back <laughs> bar and that's intentional. Um, and you know, I really want to find products that have cultural relevance to the small regions of the world that they're produced in. Hmm. Um, and so featuring those on the menu does allow me to branch out of New York, but still hold with the ethos of the restaurant. Yeah. But we have a full liquor license. We do whatever we want. Yeah. So. <laughs> Is there a bar or restaurant or cocktail bar or whatever in like the immediate area uh, that like you really love their cocktail program? Uh, there are two. Okay. Yeah. Um, and one of them comes with the asterisk that I did build the bar program <laughs> <laughs> and that's Salt City Bar. Okay. Um, but the other one is Three Lives. I love going to Three Lives. Yeah. And every time I have a great experience. Um, they are a bar that has a theme and they said, no, we will not branch out. And I love it, mm. you know, and like even, you know, just going in there and getting food with a video game pun name on it. And I'm like, yeah, they're going to make you order it. They're going to make a grown adult sit down and <laughs> order the mortal combo. Um, and I love it. <laughs> and so, and they just, I just think they do great work over there too. I'm always happy to drink with that. What's on their menu. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about, uh, you know, the speakeasy, you know, I mean, I, I think that we were kind of past the trend of speakeasies in Syracuse. At least I hope. Uh, I, yeah, there was the one in Solvay I never went to. Um, and I should say, you know, I don't know if Ryan and Leanne listen to this. I don't think they do. But I like the fits. I like it's a gorgeous space and, you know, cool what they're, you know, what they're doing down there. And I'm sure that they're, you know, I just, it doesn't seem like the speakeasies ever really hit. You know, there's Gilded Club or whatever the hell it's called. But, uh, um but I feel like that's more for like college kids and you know forty year olds that want to be hooking up with college kids than it is like the speakeasy cocktail environment. Yeah, I don't think anywhere in Syracuse is dedicated to like a true speakeasy concept. And the real truth of it is, why would you? Because you wouldn't make any money if it was really hard to get in. <laughs> well, there was the place uh, in Solve, but I don't know if it's still yeah. up after since COVID. Yeah. I haven't checked in. I never, I never want to drive like to a, to go get a drink. It's a weird thing for me. You know, it's like I live downtown. I want to walk everywhere. Um, I'm terrified of getting a DUI, um, yeah. and I'm terrified of you know putting others in danger because I'm making a rash decision. So I won't like I'll just if I want a drink, I'll just walk somewhere downtown. I'm sure I can find something. Yeah. Um, also just because I talk to them all the time and it would be really rude of me to not say, I love Otro's bar program too. Okay. <laughs> um, but like my issue with the speakeasy is like, I think Gilded has like an email blast. Um, they <laughs> sent me a flyer in the mail the other day and I was like, I get it. You, you need to, to have business to be a business. Right. But like the only speakeasy that I had ever really frequented, you had to walk downstairs in a massage parlor to a bookcase, you do a strategic knock that changed and you had to kind of find out through other people in the city hmm. and you'd get led into a bar that was cash only. Everything was $5. Hmm. And that was to me like the only speakeasy that like I had been to that really held the idea that it's not supposed to be there. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. So if you can own, uh, you know, you, you can, you're the owner, you're the operator, you're the everything. Uh, we'll exclude food. Uh, we'll say it's a cocktail bar. Uh, first of all, would you want that to own that here in Syracuse? 
Uh, no, but not, it's not anything against Syracuse. Mm. It's, I'm not from here and I grew up on the West coast. And when I moved to the East coast, I moved to Florida when I was 19, my family was like, we're right behind you. I never came. (laughs) 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 And, uh, my brother and his wife, you know, they had a kid a couple years ago now, Vincent, he's three. Uh, and like, I had no connection to my extended family growing Mm. up. And so I've always had this like idea that like, I need to get back because I want to be a part of my extended family's life. And like, I really like upstate New York. I think Mm -hmm. it is, it's very cool. And I knew that like, without even consciously knowing that I liked it was when people would try to say negative things. I'm like, Syracuse sucks. I'm like, Hey, fuck you, man. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and I knew that I was like, okay, you like, you do like living here. And so I probably, you know, would maybe, if I was here long term, I'd probably buy property in Geneva would be the plan. Okay. I just love Geneva. I think it's such a cool town. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously it's like gateway to Seneca Lake for wineries and so but it's uh definitely like, you know, I've just known that I have to leave at some point. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um I'll come back to my second question my second part of that. But you know, I I love Syracuse. I really do. Um it's a really Different city. You have to figure it out. You have to like really know. Um, it's surprising, not because not for any, not for anything that they've done, but it's surprising that the restaurants we have that are so good have lasted. Um, you know the Amanos and the Edens and you know St. Urban's. Um, and um, you know I'd like to think that if COVID didn't happen, that Deefy would still be around. Uh, but it's a really different environment. You know. Um, the population of people that I think uh, are open to new ideas and concepts and food and drinks uh, is really, really small. Um, You know, like I've talked about a lot. uh, I've said this a lot and somebody just repeated exactly what I've said to me today. And that is, you know, Syracuse is like three, four, five years behind Buffalo and a lot of our food trends and Buffalo is like five to 10 years behind, you know, New York City and other developing cities. And so it can be challenging at times because of that. You know, I opened 3-1 Fried in April, and a lot of people were saying, this is like the newest thing to happen in food across the country. I can't believe it. It's a fried, gourmet fried chicken sandwich. It's like, well, this has been happening for the last three years in Rochester. It's just yeah. we're just now getting to it in Syracuse. So those are the things. It's just, it's a real, it can be challenging. You have to like kind of figure it out and work with it. I mean, maybe maybe that's my perspective. I think your perspective is probably different because you're doing what you're doing at Eden and it seems to be working. Yeah, I have like, I call it like a, a bowl in a china shop perspective on Syracuse. It's sort of just like, this is what I want to do and mm. I'm going to do it. Yeah. And you'll drink it or you won't. Mm. And that's it at the end of the day. And mm. so like, you know, and, and that has been, Rich and I talk about that a lot at Eden. Like, I have, I think I have six pet gnats on the menu. Uh, on the bottle list, they're not crazy. They're not all glass boys. Yeah. Um, and I I cannot sell them for the life of me. Mm. And pet gnats were trendy five years ago. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I think they're neat. I like to have them around. If I drink sparkling, that's usually my go-to. Okay. Um, and it's like, as much as I want to be excited about it, I know they're not going to sell. They're mostly there for me, you know? Mm. And uh, sometimes part of the program, I think, like, once I have recognized it's not going to work, it's the, it's just there for me at mm-hmm. the end of the day. Okay. That's interesting. When you're making a menu or, you, I mean, you know, what's, uh, what's some advice you would give to somebody who's trying to develop a cocktail menu and trying to cover every base? 
You know, they want everybody, every different style of person to come in and be able to find something. Are you thinking about that? Or are you thinking yes. like these are the drinks? Um, yes. So it is one of my biggest pet peeves. You do not build a bar program that's for everyone. You build a bar program where each piece is a section for someone. Um, there is no reason, like, if you've established that you don't have a clientele that's going to spend money and you decide to only buy Johnny Walker and Dewar's, <laughs> you will never get Scotch people. They won't show up. Um, they exist. They're in Syracuse. There's all sorts of weird whiskey weirdos here. Yeah, yeah. Um, you put a few nice Scotches on the menu. It doesn't have to be a lot. It's a two or $300 investment to get four good bottles. You'll find them. They'll find you. Yeah. And so... My frustration is when I see people and they make a menu and it's linear and it's for one kind of person, but they think they're doing it for everybody. Mm. Like, in my opinion, there's no need for any flavored vodka to exist on any bar ever. <laughs> it just, it's not necessary. Yeah. You, can, you can make a fruity drink without flavored vodka. Um, and, you know, you show up to these new places and no disrespect to Kettle One. I think the botanicals are really cool, but mm. you don't need them. Yeah. They're not necessary. Uh, you can buy cucumber and mint, you know, you can buy grapefruit and rose water. Like, it's, it's all right there. It's all available to you. And yeah. so... You build a bar program that is based around the idea that you want to attract different walks of life that way. And then it's the same thing with a cocktail. There's nothing more infuriating to me than when I read a menu. I don't like cocktails with acidity, personally. Mm. Um, I read a menu, and I'm like, that's a sour, 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 sidecar, sour, sour, sidecar, sour. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, we're not getting a cocktail then. Let me see the beer list. Oh, it's all... It's all I'm trying to think of like, I like IPA, so I can't say it's all IPAs, um, but That's what you know, yeah. it's all Shores beers. Um, <laughs> but you know, and it's the same, it's like the same thing of having a wine list that it's entirely California Cabernet. You have yeah. eight glass pours and they're all California Cabernet. Like, okay, sure. They're different, but are they different enough to all deserve to be glass pours? Yeah. Um, and that's what frustrates me. And it's what prevents me from getting cocktails. Most places. It's like, I don't want a riff on this cocktail. I want you to invest in something that is for people who like sipping cocktails, you know? Hmm. riff on the negroni have fun with that don't call it a negroni but you know have yeah. fun with that um i just was at a restaurant recently i won't say the name but i had you know we were sitting there and i uh and I, you know kind of going along with your thought earlier about the negroni and you know does it really work but you know i wasn't like feeling that great and so i was like i wasn't drinking but i was like oh, i'll get a negroni and uh, i ordered it and it came to me in a glass that was this big and, um, which is fine, but it was filled to the absolute very tip, uh, uh, with a lemon peel on top. And it was like, it looked, it just looked like, uh, like a rum and Coke. That's what it looked like. I mean, it was dark, you know, it was not red. Uh, I don't know if there was, um, uh, any Campari in there, but if there was, it was very little, it was really, really bitter. So I'm assuming maybe they just put a shit ton of vermouth in, I don't know, but, um, uh anyways yeah it was just a very very bad cocktail but it was a fucking negroni you know i mean it wasn't yeah. like i was asking for something ridiculous it was just a fucking negroni yeah um that is really fr i've noticed that that really infuriates me i ordered a manhattan um uh at a place and uh, the bartender said do you want to put a muddled orange in it like i did last time you probably you like you liked that last time and i was like no i said a manhattan <laughs> and she was like Oh yeah, right. And then she still served me the old fashioned. <laughs> so um, uh, I shouldn't say it infuriates me, but it, it does a little bit. You know, like these are people that are, I would assume, experts. I don't know anything about it, and I know enough for those things. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a frustrating industry in that sense. Um, you know, I'm part of an organization called the Court of Master Sommeliers. There's another one called WSET. You know, these are certifying bodies that allow you to call yourself a SOM. The amount of people that I meet are just like, I'm a SOM. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it's as simple as that. You don't just you don't just get to say you're an engineer. Yeah. You have to go to school for that. <laughs> and so the amount of people who are just like, they like in a weird way, it almost like drags the profession down to be like, you know, like I ordered, this wasn't, this wasn't in Syracuse, but I ordered a Manhattan mm. and it was, I watched her drop an orange slice into a cocktail shaker and I was like, I don't want it. <laughs> like, and I was like, well, I don't know what's about to happen, but I, it, it appears to me she's about to shake yeah. this drink and I don't want this anymore. Yeah. Like, and so it's so frustrating when there's like, these are classics. These have rules. They are immutable. You cannot change them. Please stop trying yeah. to change them. I don't want cherry juice in this. I don't want orange juice in my <laughs> Aperol spritz. Like, please stop riffing <laughs> on classics. <laughs> or if you're going to riff, do something cool. Like do, oh, I did a fat wash vucre. Very cool. Yeah. Not like I did a vucre, but I swapped out the cognac for, um, uh, what is that? Like um, sour apple pucker. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, it's not a vucre anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. I mean, I say all this, but you know, in July, I you know decided to try and make an old fashioned for a customer. Ordered, you know, they came up to the bar and he was like, "I don't want anything on your menu." Uh, I forget what the drinks were from the last menu, but they were all you know summery, fruity things. And um, and so he wanted, he said he wanted something with bourbon, but he didn't just want like a bourbon on the rocks. So it was like, oh, I could make you an old fashioned. I have some orange bitters. And he was like, okay. And then I proceeded to shake the piss out of it. And, uh, and he looked at me like I was a complete idiot and he, he still drank it. Thank God. Um, but when I went home that night, I was like, oh, I should, it was like, I forget. It was like, do you shake that or, you know? And so I was like, I should look it up. And then that led me to realize that I was an idiot. And, so I am, um, you know, I do a lot of bar training in the area. And one of the big things that I always say is that I'm a, uh, an education based first bartender. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the first things I always tell people is that the old fashioned is a very cool cocktail because the name is the identity. Um, <laughs> it, it comes from people in the early 1920s, I think, or later mid 19 teens saying like, make me a cocktail in the old fashioned. Yeah. There's no distinction of a spirit, which is my favorite part. You can have a gin old fashioned. I don't recommend it, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was the idea that there are four ingredients and that is it's bitters, a little bit of a sweetener, spirit and water. And that's it. The fruit came later. That's a whole other thing called a Wisconsin style with the muddled fruit. We don't have to Mm. talk about that. Um, (laughs) But, you know, the the original cocktail has an identity. And and once you kind of understand that a lot of these cocktails are based in that, the Manhattan's recipe is in its name. It's the area code of Manhattan. You know, (laughs) they're named this or they're this way for a reason. Yeah, it's, um, yes. Yeah. I did a video on... You know, so we're, I'm, I'm making a lot of videos now that we've got the bar and everything. Um, so I did a video on a John Wayne. So I bought these pictures that are hanging up on the wall just because I thought they would look cool on camera. But it's, you know, Ringo and Captain Kirk and Elvis and John Wayne. And so as I'm trying to think of the content to make, I thought, well, I'll Google and see what they're those four, like what their favorite cocktails were. None of those four people fucking had great, their favorite cocktails. John Wayne apparently drank just tequila all the time. Uh, the others, you know, I think, I think uh, whatever the fuck his face is that played Captain Kirk was actually sober for most of his life. But anyways, uh, so I found a recipe from Duke Spirits called the John Wayne Old Fashioned. It's an old fashioned with a drop of soda water instead of, you know, regular tap water. And 
So I made that and put it on our TikTok, and it blew up. We got like 300,000 views. <laughs> and everybody was saying, so this is just an old-fashioned. <laughs> you should do the, um, you should do an Elvis bend, uh, what is it, creme de banana mm. and um, screwball. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Shake the two yeah. together. <laughs> <laughs> so I, Elvis is, like, the first thing that I found for Elvis was some crazy tiki cocktail that has an entire ban- peeled banana laying on top of a rocks glass that then you set on fire when you serve it. And I was like, okay, I'm not fucking doing that. Um, I found a drink that Bon Appetit put out, and what the hell was in this thing? I forget what it was, but it had like a little bit of grape, grape or uh, grapefruit juice in it, and I'll have to find the recipe. I put it out. It was actually a pretty good cocktail. Zero clue why it's called the Elvis, but that's what they named it, because I'm pretty sure that Elvis never drank this thing. Um, but uh, it was nice little bitter cocktail. So... Um, so, so how long have you been in Syracuse? A little over two years now. Moved here July of 2020. What brought you here? Um, it was a combination of a handful of things. Uh, the restaurant I worked at in Maine had permanently closed. Um, they have since reopened in Brunswick actually, but, um, I was, you know, I was working with, I think like 400 wine bottles at the time on the list, you know, full control of the beverage program. I was very happy there. And when it closed, I was like, well, there isn't really another opportunity for me in Maine that's going to hit me as both the cocktail and the wine focus. I'm not going to find that here. So I was looking to leave as is. um, And my partner got into grad school Mm. and she got into a few schools in the country, uh, one down in Boston. I think she got into a school in D.C. and out here in Syracuse. And Syracuse gave her the best scholarship. And it was extremely appealing for me to move here because of the wine region. And I really wanted to be a part of the Finger Lakes. And so we were like, okay, let's go to Syracuse (laughs) and just packed it up and moved out here. That's cool. Yeah, it was uh, it worked out actually really well for us. So. Have you um, have you been able to connect to the like as mu- as many of the wineries or that scene in the Finger Lakes as you hoped? Yes, actually, I have received a warmer welcome than I had even dreamed of. Actually, mm. um, I started at Eden. And we had, I think, maybe 10 or 15 wine bottles on the list at the time. And the chef and owner, Rich, he'd said to me, um, you know, what's it take to win a wine spectator? You know, I saw you one too at your last job. Like, what's it take? And so we figured out what we needed to get together to get qualified for a wine spectator award. And mm. that involved flexing out the bottle list to north of 90. And so it's a very unique position for me to say that I have tried every single bottle on the bottle list mm. because I brought them in after I tried them. Okay. Um, and for a lot of it, you know, these were wineries that weren't going through distribution. Uh, mm. I still pick up a lot of wines for Eden. I drive mm. out to the property and with a check and, <laughs> and trade off for the wine and bring it back here. You know, or like somebody is sold out through distribution or never offered an item there. And I tasted it with the winemaker. And so they sold me a couple bottles like retail and it's mm. now on the Eden list. And so it's all this like, you know, ability to just be out there. The wine dinner series has really helped with that too, of like being able to tour these properties, meet the winemakers, hear their vision and their idea and understanding and why they want to do what they're doing. Um, and it's just been great. Mm. I met um, Christopher Bates down in Texas earlier this year. I was at the advanced course and he gave me his contact information so I could join the FLX tasting group. So, cool. you know, I know some other Psalms in the area now too. So, you know, I'm not community free. I don't really participate but i'm sort of there i'm on the email list um and so (laughs) you know there are you know there are people and there is community for it here and so it's great to see and great to be a part of it that's cool there's um at one point i I told myself i wanted to have the first level certification and everything just because just to say i 
partially just to say I had it partially thought thinking it would help for eat local New York and um, it pro- maybe it would I don't know but probably not and uh, so I started with beer and I realized quickly with beer you just have to give them your email address and your you know the first level whatever the fuck it is um, but then it, it is pretty funny to talk to and obviously you know wine and beer are very different worlds in terms of the people who make them Um. I wonder. I wonder if there's more wineries or breweries in in uh, in this country. Probably breweries, right? I think there's definitely breweries. Yeah. I think we're over five thousand breweries Jesus. now. Um, and I think wine is. They're all so they're different vineyards. But if you qualify it this way, seventy um, percent of the wine industry is owned by ten companies in the United States. Really. Um, the remaining thirty percent is the other everybody else, yeah. and those are all of your independent, not conglomerate winemakers. Huh. Uh, many of them have the dream, myself included, of opening a property that gets bought out by a conglomerate. <laughs> so, yeah. What are those? I mean, uh, are, there, are there any of those major winemakers in New York State? They're coming. And this is why I think I have a big belief that the Finger Lakes are going to be one of the premier regions in the country hmm. shortly in the next 10 years or so. Um, the Riesling is already the best in the country. Hmm. And there's, in my opinion, there's no disputing that. Some of the Rieslings I have had here have rivaled some of the greatest French and German Rieslings I have ever drank. Hmm. Um, same thing with the Cabernet Franc. I think the best Cabernet Franc absolutely blows any California out of the water because it's uh-huh. too hot for most of California to grow great Cab Franc. Um, you, I think Gallo has bought some property out in the Finger Lakes, and then Taylor already was here. Wow. I think they bought property back in the 80s, and they're probably the two biggest companies in the United States hmm. for wine production. Um, and I just, I see it. There are, you know, obviously there's a master som here. There are more people moving here. There are wineries or winemakers coming from California to be out here. Um, both the winemakers at Dr. Constantine Frank are originally from Napa Valley. And so I think it's changing and it's growing as time comes up. Yeah. So is that a dream of yours is to one day be able to, you know, whether it's own or just run your own winery? My dream, I I would love to own my own little like ecosystem. I would love to own like a coffee shop and coffee roaster, (laughs) a brewery, a distillery, a winery (laughs) and a restaurant. And just all on the same block would be ideal. So I didn't have to travel very far. (laughs) Do living roots out in Rochester. They call themselves an urban winery and they source grapes and they own property, I believe, on Seneca Lake. But they make the wine in Rochester. And so like you can do it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, for sure. And their wines are great. (laughs) I was just at... um, I was in Rochester today, so about, well, four weeks ago, I decided it's time to get Eat Local. You know, the name of the company is Eat Local New York, but 95% of what we post about is all Syracuse and Central New York. So um, I decided it's get finally going to be time to get out of Syracuse. So one day a week, I go out to Rochester. And um, so far, it's been, I, I pretty much check in at like two to three places. I'll get coffee, I'll work for a little bit, I'll go get lunch, and then I'll stop at a brewery and you know set up a podcast in advance and um and that's been fun but today i went to this place called 20 deep winery okay and um i forget the exact name of the town that it's in but it's you get off like at victor and basically go south and uh it was cool i mean you know they pitch themselves as a winery with a brewery vibe um so it's like kind of an industrial building and you know in their tasting room tap house and um you know, they have a big garage door that opens up on the other side of the bar. So then the bar is two-sided and, you know, all the, the grapes are right there. So uh, it was, you know, pretty interesting. Um, 
I think he said that they've been producing their own wines for three years now, three or four years. Uh, I didn't get a chance to taste any of them, but, you know, it was interesting to kind of see a winery that's that young, you know, pop up. Um, it reminds me of Strigo in Baldwinsville. Have you been there? I haven't been yet, but I, I, I'm a fan from afar. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, really interesting people that own it. Um, but yeah, they kind of did the same thing, like in the middle of nowhere in Baldwinsville. I mean, it's literally in the middle of nowhere for Baldwinsville. And, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know if they're producing their own yet. I know that they planted a lot a few years ago or two years ago, so... I don't know if they... Well, you need, what, three years after you plant before you can actually harvest and use it? Depends. Um, you know, I think a lot of wineries want at least 10 years or so on the vines. Oh, wow. Um, a lot of wineries that exist in the Finger Lakes were purchased from previously failed wineries. Um, uh. And so the the vines that exist on the property are, are 30, 40 years old. Okay. And that's... you the. The theory behind it is, is for the most part, there's a, a peak, obviously, and then a decline after. But, you know, there's a sweet spot as far as, like, your your vine is established and it's deeply rooted. And depending on how you have everything set up, it is, you know, uh, pulling the, the, you know, I don't know how much ground there actually is to this, but they say, like, the deeper the roots are, they pull more minerals out and give you more complexity in the wine. Okay. Um, so three years old vines, you know, we're, we're, we're very, very young and maybe mm. seeing a little fruit on them, but it's not... I don't know. You know, I don't know if it'll be qualified enough to produce like fine wine, quote unquote. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Um, all right. So what was the, you know, what was the process like getting ready for your, you know, certified certification? I have never cried more in a single day. <laughs> <laughs> the day of? The day of, yeah. Um, so... You know, for me, by the by the peak of studying, like I, I try to I'm studying for the advanced right now. And what I always say is like, I'm trying to like ramp up discipline more than anything else. So it's the idea that I'm studying for an hour a day, no matter what the content is. Maybe I'm reading about beer. Maybe I'm reading about cocktails. I have a book on Burgundy right now that I'm reading and I'm going so slow through it, but it's like about the idea that I, I did it for an hour every single day. Mm. And by the time, you know, the exam rolls around, I believe theory, I think I'm sitting in May, um, you know, mm. I will hopefully be at a point where it is only my focus. Mm. And that is kind of what I did for the certified. I went from trying to study an hour or two a day all the way up to, you know, my whole life was wine leading mm. into the, the week of the exam. And that is the one, you know, kind of pitfall of Eden is serving only New York wines. I don't get a lot of exposure. Uh, wine is expensive. Um, so, you know, the idea of like spending thousands and thousands of dollars on bottles, um, you know, just to make sure that you know what these things taste like is is difficult. And, you know, but I treat it like, almost like an educational expense. Like, mm. you know, you have to buy these wines because you need to know what this tastes like. And you need to understand why this whatever chemical compound presents itself this way in this wine. Mm. Um <clears throat> But for certified, and this is, I don't know if you've met a lot of Psalms. Um, uh, they. No, not, no one that's ever been certified. The only one that I, I've ever met, really, that I know, and he's, you know, he's, he's level one, whatever that is, but uh, Anthony D'Onofrio. I don't know if you've ever met him. I have not. Uh, he's currently the chef out at the yards. He's like, like the corporate chef for Bull and Bear Roadhouse. Oh, okay. Which is kind of funny to say that he's <laughs> level one and he's the corporate chef at Bull and Bear. Anthony, if you're listening to this, I think you're a great, very talented <laughs> chef and you have a wonderful palate. Um, but I, a lot of Psalms, and if there are any other Psalms listening to this, I'm not sorry, (laughs) are uh, extremely egotistical. Mm -hmm. Um, and for a lot of them, wine is, 
they're everything. You know, they work as floor psalms in big restaurant groups in big cities in the country. I have never been that. And mm-hmm. I've always worked with small restaurant independent owners as the person, like doing everything in the beverage program. Um, and so the certified examination for me was very difficult. Um, but when you talk to other certified psalms, they say it's a breeze. They're like, oh, it's easy peasy. And hmm. and it's not. And, and and I don't understand why they can't just accept that they did something that was hard and did something that was an accomplishment in their lives. Hmm. But the the actual exam itself was, it's, a, it's an all-day exam. You start in the morning. It was six blind wines in 30 minutes um, on paper, thankfully. And then you leave that into a theory examination. I think it was like 10 pages, um, anything from multiple choice questions to like short answer, like, you know, explain the process of carbonic maceration. Um, And you leave that and you do a service examination. Mm. And every person before doing service thinks service is going to be the breeze. (laughs) (laughs) That like I knew um, an aspiring Psalm in in Portland who was like, my buddy just like failed. Like he, you know, he, he, failed service can you believe that that's what we do every day (laughs) and they sit there you walk around a table and it's like it's it's a master psalm and there are place cards it's like grandma mom sister Mm. dad um and they and you walk around while presenting a bottle of wine and they grill you with food and wine pairing questions vintage questions questions about beer spirits um just anything you can think of in the beverage Mm. industry um and like and they'll give you like things that you can't do. I remember one of my questions, it was something like, you know, we're having duck, salmon, and <laughs> rabbit, and we want a wine and we don't want Pinot Noir. <laughs> and and they'll do that. And they like in they want you to just rattle off a label effectively and, wow. and talk it up. Um, so it is like, you'll do that. They asked me for two uh, Italian lagers. I remember that question very specifically because I said Peroni and, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, and so it's, you're walking around, you're presenting this wine the whole time and they'll, it's from every stage of the dinner. Like we were talking about earlier with like kind of, you know, beverage questions, what you want to be drinking at certain times. Uh, I mean, they had questions about dessert wines I'd never heard of and Hmm. still like, and to the point where I couldn't categorize it like as a memory, I still don't know what they asked me. Wow. (laughs) And that was absolutely the hardest part of the exam. But wow. the in between the the theory and tasting, you get a couple hour break before you come back for service. And I thought I was going to get kicked out of a coffee shop because I was so sure I failed. And I was just sitting there with a teeny espresso, just crying at this table <laughs> alone. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. The you know, I mean, watching the the couple of documentaries that I've seen on the process, especially those is it, is it the, is the main one Psalm where they yeah. go after their master. Um, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, it's astounding. Is that, is that a level that you hope to get to? It is. Yeah. It was, you know, they call it like catching the wine bug from like the moment I caught it. That's what I realized I wanted to do. Hmm. And that's a cool feeling to be like, yeah, this is it. I found it. Like, um, and it's always been a dream of mine to just continue to learn and just I'm not like a competitive person against other people, but I'm a competitive person against myself. Mm-hmm. And so I would never be content with not trying. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, I feel like you get to a point where you kind of just like you, you've taken the test enough times that you're like, all right, maybe, maybe it's not for me, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I want to at least get there. Yeah. So, you know, if I pass, I pass, but if I fail eight times, then I failed eight times <laughs> <laughs> and we're content with advanced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, um, I mean, what are the, what are some of those possibilities that open up to someone who is a master, Sam? Kind of just 
really anything, which is, it's, it's a lot of freedom. Um, you know, and you get a lot of it at the advanced level too, of sort of like, you're not, you're not meeting a lot of other people who have the same qualifications as you. And so if you're with a restaurant group that effectively can afford you, you know, you'll be on doing kind of whatever you think is best for the restaurant. Mm. The cool thing, when I was down in Texas, you know, I met a lot of master psalms who did things that I didn't see as possibilities in the industry. Um, one woman, she was the C or she is the CEO of like a 30 restaurant restaurant group in mm. Texas. Um, and that's awesome. Like, yeah. you know, that's not a job I thought was available to me. Um, one of the guys, I, they're, you know, the odds of them actually finding or listening to this are probably not high. So <laughs> they'll forgive me if I forget their names. Um, but <laughs> he gave a speech. He's based out of Boston and he is the CFO of a wine investment firm. Hmm. So they have like a warehouse, they hang on to bottles. You buy them as a consumer, watch them appreciate and value, attempt to sell them to somebody else. Wow. And that's his job. And he manages like this multi-million dollar portfolio. And that's just, again, not a job that I thought was ever even a possibility. Hmm. Like, you kind of just get this opportunity to do more in the industry, yeah. you know, and to be effectively, like, a, the kind of person who can shift a paradigm. Hmm. You know, there's under 300 of these people in the world. Like, yeah. obviously, you know, if they've decided a beverage trend is different, like, they have a huge amount of pull, so. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. pretty interesting. It's, um, there isn't, I mean, even when you get into... Uh, well, uh, I forget what beer is, but there, there's very few in beer. Um, but I feel like, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. It does feel like these types of, I mean, obviously there's, you know, those that are prestigious and that have, you know, been around forever. But it feels like more of those classifications, more groups that are creating those classifications are popping up. Um, I mean, just from like a simple Google search uh, the other night, like I was, I was starting to look into, okay, what is this for mixology? Like... You know, and is this a, is that even like a taken seriously accredited um, process? You know, or accredited group that you can go through to, you know, become an expert when it comes to those things. And there's like five different groups that pop up that you know, like get your certification, get your certification. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see uh, all those things that exist now for it, and beer, cocktails, and wine, and then tobacco as well. Yeah. Uh, so what's your, you know, immediate hope for the future here at Eden, you know, one day you're going to be back on the West coast. You want to own a conglomerate of a coffee <laughs> shop and a restaurant and brewery and winery. And, you know, what's your immediate goals? Uh, you know, next couple months I'm, you know, I'm here at least for the, I think probably the next year we're still kind of undecided, um, as what the, the timeline looks like. Mm. My partner is finishing up her second externship at upstate right now. And so mm. when she's done, we're free effectively. And we don't know what that means, which is, it's exciting. It's a, I'm a very calculated person and it's kind of the first time in my life where I'm like, I'm not sure. Yeah. And that feels, it does feel exciting. You know, we have the possibility of like, I really, love the idea of Denver or San Francisco. Those are the two cities I think we've limited it down to because mm. they are a short flight, but you can't just show up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and I made the mistake of taking my partner to Portland, Oregon in January, or December, <laughs> late December, early January. And so she's like, I don't think I can live here. This is horrible. And I was like, no, the summers are great. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and so, you know, Portland was a possibility for a while too, but not really sure, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's the it's kind of fun for that. Like, you know, I consult on the side, maybe another contract will pop out, but I'm not really looking for one, you know, if it finds me awesome, but like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to kind of 
force my way into a position where I'm, I'm my help is not necessary for a bar. You know, yeah. like if you're looking to, if you're just trying to like sling vodka sodas to college kids, you don't need me. There's no reason to hire me, you yeah. know? Um, and so just kind of working, you know, um, the, we're working on, well, I'm, we're going to call it like the Seneca Lake wine dinner series. We're going to do four back-to-back wine dinners with four different Seneca Lake producers. Cool. So we're kind of just planning for that, studying for the advanced exam, you know, trying to, keep, trying to, trying to not stress out about stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, working with the chef, we've been on and off, you know, everybody does this in the world. Every single person who's in a creative field is writing a book, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so we've been writing a book (laughs) Um, about just kind of like cocktails and food pairing and kind of the identity behind that. You and Rich? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And we try to meet, you know, semi-regularly about it. Uh, Just been so busy lately. It's kind of fallen on the back burner. But, you know, the the idea of just trying to make this argument and say that cocktails have a place in this, in in this fine world, you know. That's really cool. Hmm. So uh, what advice would you give to anyone who's... Uh, I guess maybe two different people. One person who's wanting to get into their into their certification and get into the world of like they think they want to become a psalm one day, whatever level that is. And then the second person is just someone who wants to start taking, you know, cocktails and mixology more seriously. I have the same advice for both of them, and it's read more, drink less. Okay. <laughs> There's uh, you know no situation like I I I have not for the most part, enjoyed being in tasting groups because they just turn into drinking. (laughs) Um, And so I try to do my tastings in the morning because then Mm. it can't turn into drinking (laughs) because I have things to do. That's weird. That's good advice. Um, And so for me, you know, there are books and there are people who are, who have laid down the foundations that you should, you should know. In my Mm. opinion, you should, there's, you shouldn't just kind of like wing it and fall into it. Do the research spend the time understanding why things are the way they are. You know, it's, you know, for anybody listening, find out why you shouldn't put Maker's Mark in a Manhattan. That's, you know, and if you can answer that question, you're onto a great foundation. Well, unfortunately, (laughs) Jim Beam just became a sponsor of my event company for the next year. So drink up, people, drink up. Maker's Mark (laughs) makes a great old fashioned. (laughs) Uh, No, they're they're Maker's 46. Uh, So in, in, um, in February, I think it was February, March, Kyle, who owns Kasai and all those, uh, who's opening the tap house, uh, bought his own barrel of rye. And um, he's going to have it bottled and he's going to be serving it at the tap house whenever it opens. And so I run his social media and I said, that'd be awesome if I could go with you and I can document the whole thing. I'll bring my cameras and get video and photos. So I had the opportunity. It was really cool. That was actually like the first... That trip was the first step in me thinking about cocktails and what's used in them because the um, rep that was with us, who's uh, he's not a rep, but he's he works for Jim Beam and I, I forget the other brand, or I'm sure more, but um, he's like in charge of the whole East Coast or Northeast or something. I forget which, but very high t- title. And so the first night that we were in town, he took us out and... It was really like, he was like, this place makes a great Manhattan. This place makes a great old fashioned. This place makes this. And so we were like going around to different bars and he was ordering the drinks and ordering them, you know, with very specific spirits in them. 
and um, and I thought that was really interesting. I was hammered, uh, but I still remember the experience, and it was a good one. Uh, so that was the first time that I was thinking, like, okay, like in, in Kentucky, in Louisville, I had that Manhattan that they made with basil Hayden toast was great. So if the bar has that, that's what I'm going to order in my Manhattan. Um, and then the very next day we went, we started the Jim Beam plant, and it was a really cool experience. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people – you know, who buy those barrels, like working with Pascal's, I mean, he's, it seems like he's getting multiple, multiple, multiple barrels, private barrels every single year from different distilleries. But, um, I have his Elijah Craig, uh, private barrel over there. Uh, that's good. But, um, anyways, it was a cool experience. Like we got to tour the whole gem beam plant and get the history and see their like experimental room and, uh, they're like, ex- like private experimental bar where they do their stuff and then go into one of the warehouses where they had three barrels of Knob Creek rye out and, you know, the whole thing, it was like, okay, here's, they walked you through it and, uh, getting to like, even go back and forth with Kyle and Jesse and say, okay, this is the barrel that we're going to buy. It was really, really cool. And then we left there and we went down to the Maker's Mark facility and that was interesting as well. Yeah. How do you have time for all of these things? You, know, you, you run this, you own three, one fried, you are down in Kentucky touring these facilities. Yeah. You're in Rochester one day a week. You bartend. Uh, it's seemingly yeah. sometime. Yeah. <laughs> I bartend every Thursday through Sunday, Thursday, Friday night, and then all day, Saturday, Sunday, Wednesdays. I'm at the restaurant for a little bit coming up with like a special with the, our kitchen manager out there and photographing it. Um, there's a social media side of this. I do that for 13 businesses, restaurants right now, and then trying to create content, you know, eat local New York is just such a weird, it's, I've had it for seven years. Um, I, you know, we have the card that we sell the discount card, right. You know, I'm trying to get restaurants to join that. Um, right now I'm kind of like in this, I want, well, I want Eat Local New York to be like a barstool sport of food in New York State one day. So I want us to have like a shit ton of content and be making money off of sponsorships and, and uh, you know, promotions and web traffic and all that and then have products that we can sell. And I also want to be like a little bit of eater where we kind of investigate, you know, and do interesting stories on things that are affecting the industry. Um, and help the public realize it because, you know, one thing that, uh, I think we've seen in the area in the past since the pandemic is, um, the amount of information that we've exposed to the public, you know, about our restaurants and about the industry. You know, it's like the parents always, you know, don't argue in front of the kids. Well, the arguments fucking happen in front of the kids. I don't know if that's helping the kids grow up well or not, or if that's going to give them emotional issues as they're 30. But, uh, for the time being, there's a lot of restaurants that are exposing all of the harsh realities of the industry. I still don't know if that's right or not. I still don't know if the consumer should give a fuck if you can't get chicken legs this week or not. Uh, you know, I think that is, you know, I talk about this sometimes at work about how I agree with that, that the pandemic has changed how we view the restaurant industry. 
And it, and for me, I've dropped any sort of filter when I speak with guests about it. Mm. And I think for, for our environment, that works really well. You know, I had a, a guest come in the other day and, and they wanted a table and I was like, you know, we're all booked up. I'm sorry. And they were like, well, you know, can we make a reservation on the next day? And it was Saturday night and we weren't open again until Wednesday. And she says to me, and I was like, oh, you know, we have, we have Wednesday available. And she's like, you have nothing before that. And I was like, well, we're closed for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And she's like, you're closed for three days? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it creates a really good work-life balance with the kitchen. <laughs> and then <laughs> conversation over. And, and like, I, I'm noticing that of sort of, like, in my opinion, you know, the restaurants that are desperately, you know, nobody wants to work anymore. Like, it, it's this way because you're not treating people right. Mm. You're, not, you're not paying them a reasonable wage for yeah. their work. You are, you know, abusive as an employer and disrespecting these people. And the one thing I think the pandemic did really good for restaurant people, at least, you know, was the ability to stand up and be like, there's better jobs. Like, yeah. You know, they, I don't have to take this. I can cook down the road from here for $4 more an hour and not get yelled at. Like, yeah. why would I do this? Yeah. And so that part, you know, I look at it as hopefully a positive in the industry. Yeah. Know? I think, um, you know, a lot of owners are like reaching out and they're saying, you know, a lot of a lot of people are keep asking the question, well, where did all these employees go? Because they didn't go to just the restaurant down the street. A lot of them completely left the industry. And, um, you know, there was a restaurant that was shut down during the pandemic. And when they opened back up, they tried to hire their staff back. And a lot of their staff were saying, we went and got a job at Target because it paid like a dollar or two more an hour. And there's health benefits and vacation time and and all these things that we didn't have at your restaurant, which is understandable, but not everybody's working at fucking Target, you know, in Syracuse. So I think a lot of people have gotten jobs, you know, nowadays I could go online tomorrow and find a job at pretty much any Fortune 500 company doing online customer service from my computer at home. Actually, a computer you're going to send me and a cell phone that you're going to send me and just sit in my pajamas on my couch all day and get paid 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. With benefits. So I think a lot of people left the industry. Um, and I think it depends on the style of restaurant. I mean, at 31 Fried, we were trying to expand and open a second location at the farm because at Abbott's because they have a commercial kitchen. And I was like, oh, that'd be cool if we did like a residency there. So we needed two cooks, zero prep work because it was all going to be done at the main restaurant. They just had to show up, fry chicken, and that was it. And at 18 bucks an hour, I had 20 phone interviews, the all scheduled in person, in person interviews. None of them showed up for That's it. Wild. It's so there's stuff like it's just like it is a weird thing. Now, I don't know if like if you go to uh, what's the really well-known restaurant in New York? Is it Madison Park? Yeah. 11 Madison Park. 11 Madison Park. If you go to 11 Madison Park, now I'm sure that they don't have the issue, but if you go to 11 Madison Park, and actually they definitely don't have this issue today. All right. So for example, you cannot find turkey right now. It's impossible to find turkey from any food supplier in central New York. Um, The reason they're telling everybody is because of the bird flu, because it wiped out too much of their flock. I don't know if that's true or not, or if they're just doing it on purpose so they can jack the price up in a couple weeks. But it is impossible to find turkey breast right now. So now we, I know you want to have this problem at 11 Madison Park because it's a 100%. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but let's just say it was. Okay. 11 Madison Park is known for their fucking turkey breast whatever dish. Okay. 
and you go in there and you sit down and you see that it's crossed off of the menu. It's not on the menu at all. And you call, you've been there multiple times and you know, you want the fucking turkey breast and you call your server over at 11 Madison park is the sir is your waiter, maitre d', whomever. Are they going to say, well, unfortunately we're experiencing some issues in the restaurant industry and you know, Cisco couldn't get it to us. Or are they just going to apologize up and down? And fi- now, Eleven Madison Park is probably going to figure out a way to get turkey in, no matter what. But if they have to raise their own fucking turkeys, um, but I just wonder, like, what level? Like, I agree with you a hundred percent. Like, we're closed Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. You know, like, deal with it. You know, um, in some aspects, for a fine dining restaurant, it's like, okay, well, I better be there on Wednesday then if I want to get a table. I don't expect you to cater to me. I expect me to have to cater to you if I want to experience this. But I wonder at what level the public has to stop hearing about the bad stuff that's happening in restaurants. And they just have, now that doesn't mean like, sorry, I want you open 24 seven eating and I want my steak cooked how I want it when I want, you know, chimichurri on the side. Right. (laughs) But I just wonder at what level does that change? And, and general and culture, when does that go back to, you're right. I'm, yeah, we'll figure, you know, you, you know yeah. what I mean? My hope is that there is like a boil over point uh, where I think a lot of the public, especially a lot of the older public, mm. has a really hard time <laughs> uh, understanding the restaurant industry. And so I wonder, or my hope, I, I guess, my belief is that after they have been browbeaten with this information mm. at 900 different restaurants, <laughs> maybe they will understand that what they are asking is potentially not feasible <laughs> and we can stop saying it <laughs> and we can go back to the decorum of yeah. pretending that we're sorry. <laughs> Cause I would love to, I don't want to talk about the farm supply. Like, yeah, all right. right, you know? Yeah. And, but I think like for some of these people, they really need to hear it yeah. and they really need to understand that the people working these jobs are people yeah. who deserve a decent life and yeah. deserve, you know, to, to be treated fairly by the public. And I think for a long time, the restaurant industry was kind of a place where you could get away with abusing people. Yeah. And so, you know, my hope and is that eventually we will get back to it, but mm-hmm. we'll see, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe, you know, these people have, have proven time and time again that, that they are not good at learning lessons. Um, so, <laughs> I think the, I think the, the main issue is uh, too, there's too many people on planet earth is what I think there is. I think, you know, the, the world probably wasn't meant for as many, you know, massive cities and, you know, such uh, commercialization as we have, because, you know, I mean, I think back a lot to like, remember the band, like in the beginning of the pandemic or a few months after, and they were saying like the coral has like started to rebound and it's like yeah. the color is coming back and it's so healthy. Yeah. And the acidification of the ocean is declining because, you know, we're not flying ships through here all the time. Yeah. Um, it is very fascinating. And I think about this with bartending too. So are you familiar with like the origin of tiki bartending? Uh, like, Trader Vic, yes. Other than that, no. So it's kind of a fascinating story of when, like, a global supply chain started to exist is kind of when tiki bartending started to mm. exist. Um, and you can look at, like, the pineapple is a universal symbol of hospitality yeah. because it was hard to get a pineapple. So it was a big deal if you were giving a pineapple to somebody. Um, 
But when these supply chains opened and you had companies like United Fruit who could get you a pineapple year round or a banana year round, it didn't matter if they had to overthrow a government, they were going to do it. Um, you know, they brought this to the Midwest and brought this to places like Chicago is a great tiki scene because these were cold and miserable places to live. And so tiki was an escape from American conformity. And that's why none of the flavors make sense. You're like, why is half of this Polynesian and half of this Caribbean? Um, and it's because it was all these bartenders who had never seen a mango before getting a mango in june you know i don't know when mango season is i just hope it's not june for anybody listening <laughs> um well you know citrus season is december through like february so we'll yeah. say you know you get a a yuzu in june <laughs> like that's a huge deal to get something like this and so a lot of tiki came from the idea of like well let's mash all this stuff together hmm. and that's one of the things i really try to do at eden you know it's a local bar it's it's a seasonal bar if you come in in december and ask me for peaches no you will drink your beets and you will like it <laughs> Um, and that's, you know, I buy mo everything starts as a raw ingredient. I buy it all at the farmer's market or I get it through rich, whatever he's placing his order. And it's coming from New York state. And that's the point. Like you shouldn't be able to get a pineapple at any time of the year, yeah. you know? And I think yeah. that's led to a lot of these problems that we're seeing of, of these people like expecting that instant gratification. I can go to the grocery store right now and buy this fruit that is no business being here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am part of that problem. I just bought two lamps that were manufactured in China that probably have as God knows how many chemicals in them and the plastics that's going to, you know, lower my testosterone level. And I bought them on Amazon and I had them delivered. You know, I bought them on Saturday and they didn't get here till today. So, you know, I'm, you know, fucking, you know. That's my miserable. favorite uh, conspiracy theory is that Amazon created the pandemic because the two-day shipping model was unsustainable. <laughs> <laughs> that's maybe may accurate in some way <laughs> uh no well listen thank you very much for coming in and sitting down and chatting oh thanks for having um, me in <laughs> i'm sorry that it took me so long to text you and ask you to come down chris spencer told me to have you on the podcast months and months ago so uh but yeah glad we had a chat it's probably you know it's perfect timing because i'm just starting to get into it so well good yeah you know thanks for having me on you know if you're in a position in the near future where you're looking to allow me to run a ghost distillery through abbott i would love to yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know i've uh, been trying to, to launch the amaro retail for a long time so oh, cool. you know it's just been hang up after hang up so oh really <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah all right well thank you so much thank you Well, there it is, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the conversation that I just had with Keenan. Uh, I had a great time talking with him. And yeah, thank you so much, Keenan, for coming on. If you want to support Eat Local New York, head over to our website, eatlocalnewyork.com. You can purchase an Eat Local New York card. It'll save you $5 when you go to a bunch of local restaurants around the state. You can pick up one of our Eat Local New York hats, or you can buy a ticket for our upcoming bourbon and cheese pairing event that's happening September 28th. It's the last Wednesday of the month over at the Salt City Market. As always, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Hit us up at eatlocalnewyork.com to stay connected with everything we're doing. And we're going to catch you next week back here on the Eat Local New York podcast. Hey, Joe.